the Lord. It's good to see you all this morning. We're glad that you're here. And uh, I trust that you came this morning um, to glorify the one for the reason that we're even here in this place. And that's why we're here. But I guess probably this morning, I I just want to ask you a simple question. How many of y'all today could just use a little bit of encouragement? Anybody? Anybody? How many of y'all are got all the encouragement I need? Don't need any more. Everything's wonderful. Everything's moving along just like it's supposed to. Well, I think if we're all honest with each other, I think all of us could stand a little encouragement today. Well, that prompts Paul's letter to the church at Thessalonica. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 17 before we get to his actual letter uh, to the church at Thessalonica. Uh, We need to kind of understand how he got there, uh, what Paul was doing in Thessalonica to understand some of the things that were surrounding his journey and his trip there. Starting this Sunday morning today, uh, this will be kind of an introduction to Paul's letters. He's got two letters, his first letter to the church at Thessalonica, followed by his second, and we're going to do a verse-by-verse study through these two letters on Sunday morning in an attempt to try to encourage your heart. And one of, these, one of the ways that I want to encourage your heart is because is the gospel still important today? It is. Do we still need to share the gospel? We do. The importance of sharing the gospel today has not changed. Just as it was in Paul's day as he delivered the, the gospel to Thessalonica, Uh, I think we're going to be able to learn some things from what happened there um, and and draw some things out of there that hopefully is going to be helpful in our lives each day. And let me say this to you. The church is not done. The church is not finished. The church is not going to die. Matter of fact, Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 16, he said, and upon this rock I will build my church, all right? And he said, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So when we consider the magnitude of the church, I hate to tell you this, it's not going anywhere until Jesus returns and takes the church away. One of the things that the people in the church at Thessalonica were concerned about, as he wrote to the believers in Thessalonica, they were concerned that they may have already missed it. Well, let me share something with you this morning. If you've missed it, I've missed it. We've all missed it, okay? Let me say this. Jesus Christ has not returned yet to to take the church home uh, to be with him as the bride, uh, to the bridegroom. So we're still here. We still have a work to do. We still have a task to get accomplished. And that is one of the things that Paul is going to express in the church at Thessalonica. Acts chapter 17 gives us some of the details is to one of the reasons why Paul found himself in Thessalonica. How many of y'all are familiar with Paul's journey when Paul wanted to go one direction, but the Holy Spirit wouldn't let him go that direction, and he had a vision? And in this vision, there was a man who said, I need you to come over into Macedonia and help us. Well, that's why he's in Thessalonica, all right? Uh, matter of fact, here's an interesting thing about this letter to the church at Thessalonica. Of all the cities that Paul carried the gospel to, Thessalonica is one of the few cities that still exists today. It is still in existence today. 
Macedonia, as we read in the scripture, is what we know of today as modern-day Greece, all right? And so Paul in Thessalonica, as he took the gospel message to deliver it there, was based on a moving of the Holy Spirit of God and the vision that he had to find himself in Thessalonica. He also went through two other areas, as you see in chapter 17 and verse 1. He went through Amphipolis and also Apollonia, and they came to Thessalonica. If you look at a map, they made their journey up and across. They came across from Apollonia and Amphipolis, and then they came across over to Thessalonica, also where Berea was located and where it was close uh, to them. But I want us to start in chapter 17 and verse number 1. And I want you to notice as Paul writes, or as Luke writes for us, okay, uh, concerning Paul's journey. And let me say this, this is Paul's second missionary journey. There were three of them. And so we're in Paul's second missionary journey here. Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. This was always common for Paul, as you read in verse number 2, which was part of Paul's custom. When he went into a city, he would stay in a city because one of the first places that he would make his way to was to the synagogue. So you see this in verse 2. He went to them, and for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Now, a lot of folks, you know, when they read that, they think, well, you know, Paul only went there, spent three Sabbaths with them. Keep in mind where the first place he'd go to was to the synagogue. Who did he go to first? To the Jews. What did they still hold to and celebrate at this time? Was the Sabbath. So he was there for at least three Sabbaths that we know of. I will say this, more than likely Paul was there a much longer time in Thessalonica than just for three Sabbaths. And so how do we know that? Well, in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 15, Paul talks about the church in Philippi sending gifts to him while he was in Thessalonica on more than one occasion. Well, I hate to tell you this, but the journey from Philippi up to Thessalonica and back and to return again is not like we can today where we can be there in a matter of hours, okay? It took them a considerable longer amount of time to be able to deliver the offering, go back, collect another offering, make another journey back up there. So we know that the time period that he was there was much longer than just three Sabbaths. And also, one of the other things that we learned about Paul while he was in Thessalonica, one of the things that Paul also did was he needed to raise some funds. So guess what he did? He relied and fell back on his other job that he had and the trade that he had, and that was making of tents. And so we also know that while Paul was in Thessalonica, he also went back to making tents again. So for three Sabbaths, yes. In the synagogue speaking to the Jews, yes. But he had a much broader ministry than that. Verse 3. So as he came into the synagogue, what is interesting, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. He went to the synagogue, he went to the Jews first because there's a more common ground there between Paul and the Jews in the synagogue versus going straight to the Gentiles. I mean, Paul would be able to relate to them out of the Old Testament prophets he would spend time taking the gospel message to the Jews. That's one of the things that Paul still desired to do was to take the gospel message to the Jews. And so that's what he did. So what we find in verse number four is the outcome of him taking the gospel message to the synagogue. And some of them were persuaded 
and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the gospel or the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. So in other words, let me tell you what he's seen here in his time in Thessalonica. Some Jews, probably more than likely Jewish proselytes, as well as Gentiles, leading women, came to embrace the gospel. As a result of his ministry in Thessalonica, now, let me share one other thing with you. One of the things I also want you to understand is that this is the same Paul and Silas that was just prior to this was in prison. So what was the motivation behind Paul? I mean, he'd been locked up in prison. He gets out of prison. Miraculously, God removes them from the prison, allows them to get out of the prison. And oh, by the way, on their way out, they just didn't hightail it. Guess what? The jailer and his household got saved as a result of the ministry of Paul, even while he was in prison. But you know, for us today, as we look at life around us, what encourages us to stay with it? What encourages us to stick to it? What encourages us just to stay with it? The importance of the gospel, is it important? It is important. Paul was in prison. Paul had been beaten. Paul leads the jailer as well as his family to the Lord. He comes to Thessalonica. He goes straight to the synagogue to be able to share the gospel. And he sees result of his labor there. But what about us? Let me ask you a question. Is, is, is it important to us today? What we've been given through Jesus Christ, is it important in our own lives? You know, what motivates us every day where do we place God? Where do we place the church? Where do we place the things of God in our lives today as we consider where Paul is? Well, verse 5. Let me say this to you. You're never going to make an impact somewhere unless somebody doesn't like it. But. There's always the but. I guess out of all of the words in Scripture... Anytime you come to that little three-letter word, but, that means something's about to change. So guess who gets all up in arms? It's not the Gentiles. It's not the Jewish proselytes. Guess who it is? It's the Jews. It's the religious crowd that's there. Look at verse 5. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace. Let me tell you what, they went and gathered them up out of the marketplace. They get these wicked, they, they get this, this group of wicked guys and the Jews all together because why? They're jealous and they're angry about what's taking place in the city. So they get them, they form a mob, they set the city in an uproar and attacking them or, and attacking the house of Jason they were seeking to bring them out to the people. Now, Jason was a believer. He was in Thessalonica. And so they knew he was associated with Paul and what was taking place. And so guess what they do? They go to the house of Jason. You know, we'll, just, we'll, just, we'll just go after him. That's what we'll do. We'll, just, we'll go levy this first round against Jason. Now, But notice verse number 7. And Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king. In other words, let me tell you what they've done. They falsely accused them. And here's what they're saying. That Paul and them are preaching another king. There is no other king at this time as far as Rome is concerned. There was no other king other than Caesar. 
And so they accused Paul and them of perpetrating another king, which is a false accusation here as far as the secular or physical world is concerned because Jesus Christ is king of kings and lord of lords. That's who he is. So is he a king? Sure he is. In the mindset of these people? No. Here's what they were looking for. Jesus Christ, the one that they're perpetrating. In other words, he's going to be the one that's going to take over things in the city of Thessalonica. And so therefore, it is a ploy against Rome. In verse number 8. So they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. Almost sounds familiar, doesn't it? The day that Jesus Christ was crucified, what did they do? They stirred up the crowd. And as they stirred up the crowd in opposition with three false accusations against Jesus Christ himself, and the mob was stirred and the mob was worked up and they began to cry, crucify, crucify him. Well, guess what? They're stirring up the crowd here in Thessalonica. Verse 9. And so when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others... They released them. So in other words, we're just going to quieten this thing down. We're not going to make any more of a stir. And so we'll let them go. So they let them go. So what happened? Verse 10. So the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Berea is not that far. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Guess where they went back to? They went to the synagogue in Thessalonica. So when they get to Berea, guess the first place they go back to? They go back to the synagogue. They go back to the Jews that are there in the synagogue in Berea. And then verse 11. And now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so, based upon what they knew. And therefore many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men verse 13 but uh oh that's two in one chapter so guess what is getting ready to happen here but when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea also they came there as well agitating and stirring up so guess what they did they're following him around they're stirring up the crowd let me tell you something what Paul is preaching here is wrong Matter of fact, he's claiming that this new king in the place of Caesar, let me tell you what they've done. They've absolutely missed the gospel here. It's not about a king. It's not about somebody who's going to sit on a throne somewhere in a physical kingdom in a physical city. They missed the whole point here. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the one who died on the cross. He is the one who rose again on the third day. He is the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father today. That's who he is. They missed it. Verse 14, Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now here's something interesting. I want you to make sure you you note that. Silas and Timothy remain in Thessalonica. Oh yeah, by the way, those other two letters in the New Testament, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, it's this Timothy. Okay? So Timothy stays here, okay, in Thessalonica with Silas. Paul goes on. Paul is going to leave Berea, and he's going to make his way down to Athens. From Athens, eventually, he's going to make his way down to Corinth, right? So the preaching of the gospel in the city saw many become followers of Christ. 
Gentile and Jewish proselytes. It's who they, it's who they were, okay? Came to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. And of course, a false charge of treason was delivered to the city authorities. Paul and Silas were forced to leave Thessalonica. Let me say something about this, okay? It's not the first time for Paul. It's not going to be his last time. He was accustomed to that. Anytime you start to share the gospel, anytime you start to make a difference in people's lives, you can just get ready, okay? There's going to be opposition. And so Paul understood that. But what, Paul, you know, what motivated Paul more than anything else was the gospel message and what it did in his own life. They made their way. Now Berea was about 40 miles to the west of Thessalonica. One of the interesting things about it, it says here in Acts 17 that they were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they searched the scriptures daily to see whether or not what they were being taught or told was correct or true. You know, one of the things I encourage you to do every time there's teaching and preaching going on, let me tell you, one of the things that you ought to have is you ought to have this open, and here's one of the things you ought to be doing. You ought to be checking it. Search the scriptures. Paul was, a, Paul was a man. And let me tell you, and let me say something to you. They were hearing things for the first time that they'd never heard before. For us, in America, we find it very rare that we run across anybody who hasn't heard of Jesus Christ. Know something about the church. Good or bad, okay? You take your choice, okay? Sometimes it almost appears that there's more bad out there today about the church than there is good. Why is that? It's the gospel who changes and transforms lives. But I want to ask you a simple question today. What motivates us? What motivates us to be what we ought to be? As a church, to be the church that we ought to be. Was it important for Paul? Was it important for Silas? And listen, I want you to understand something about Silas. Silas was just assisting Paul and he wound up in prison okay but let me say this could you imagine Silas Paul Paul had seen Jesus Christ he he knew the the power of what he had been through but here's Silas he's following Paul he's watching all of this is taking place he's in there with Paul they're sharing the gospel and the next thing that happens is Silas winds up in prison you know, you would almost think that he wound up in prison and after it was all over with, but let me say something to you this morning. Silas saw something that absolutely changed his life from that day forward. He watched the mighty moving of the hand of God as they were released out of prison. And then on top of all of that, he watched the jailer and his whole entire household as they come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior as well. Forever changed him. Let me ask you a question. We saw it this morning in the baptistry. We've seen what the gospel can do. The gospel changes lives. The gospel transforms life. I wonder what it does for us. Let me tell you what it ought to do. There ought to be absolute rejoicing. There ought to be absolute celebrating. Why? Because another soul has come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. But does it, but, but does it, does it move us today? Well, just another baptism at the church. Isn't that wonderful? Somebody else is getting dumped. Wonder if the water's warm or cold. Folks, have we lost? Have we lost the impact and the significance of the gospel?
I know people say this all the time. I hear this a lot. Why is it always the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel? Why is it always the gospel, the gospel? Let me ask you a question. Is there anything else? What's going to get you where you need to go? I will tell you what it is. It's the gospel. The rest of it is additional. The gospel is what's so key. What did Paul do? When they went into Thessalonica, it was the gospel. When they went into Berea, it was the gospel. When he went to Athens, it was the gospel. When he went to Corinth, it was the gospel. All of Paul's journeys to Galatia, to Philippi, to all of those areas, it was about the what? It was about the gospel. However, you had your religious folks. Boy, they got upset. Matter of fact, if you look back over in, uh, let's see, uh, go back to uh, verse 5 of chapter 17. They became what? They became jealous. And let me ask you a question. Why would anybody become jealous? Huh? Let me, let me tell you something. I would love for somebody to walk up to me and say, hey, I just want to know, you ever been saved? Hallelujah. Yes, I have. Let's talk about it, okay? You know, there are ones, if you ask them if whether or not they've ever been saved or not, they get downright upset with you. Well, how dare you ask me that question? Well, why not? It ought to be something that drives us, that motivates our lives and who we are. Because I hate to tell you this, at the end of the day, this isn't where you're going to live for all of eternity. All of this is going to be gone away. And you ready for this? If you're a born-again child of God, guess where you're going to be throughout all of eternity? You're going to be in the presence of the Lord. That's where you're going to be, with Him. Celebrating the things of God, around the people of God. Oh, boy. Yep. Mm -hmm. If you're a born-again child of God, guess what? We're all going to be together one day. That is for sure. Are you looking forward to that? Okay, don't get me wrong. I'm not looking to get on the bus today or tomorrow, okay? Do you know the song we were singing this morning? Our hope is in who? It's in Jesus Christ. It's not in what we see in the world. The angry Jews from Thessalonica were not satisfied with what was taking place. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse number 1. And some of y'all are probably wondering, what in the world can we take out of the letter to the church at Thessalonica? Well, I'm going to give you a few things this morning that we'll get into in more detail as we go through the letter. <clears throat> now, there is some thought about when Paul possibly wrote the letter to the church at Thessalonica or to the believers in Thessalonica. It was probably written while he was in Corinth. So that means he would have made his way from Thessalonica to Berea on to Athens and then down to Corinth and probably more than likely wrote it while he was in Corinth. Also, it is considered to be one of the earliest letters from Paul. Uh, with the exception of, there is a debate over whether or not he wrote the letter to the church at Galatia first or the one to Thessalonica first. It really doesn't make any difference which one he wrote first. Okay, We do know that it was written under the hand of Paul. Matter of fact, when you read verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. In other words, Paul and Silas and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians 
in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what he says, grace to you and peace. So how do you look at Paul's letters to the church at Thessalonica? They come primarily as a letter of affirmation and encouragement from Paul. Affirmation and encouragement for, for what? Well, the believers were very concerned about the fate of the dead members of the community. I don't know how many of you have been to funerals, but if you've been to many funeral services, you will often hear a very common passage of Scripture that is used at funerals. If you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4, and you will see the Thessalonians concerned, the believers in, Thessalonica, uh, in Thessalonica, of what they were concerned about. So look at verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, in other words, those who have died, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. In other words, don't want you to be concerned about them. I don't want you to be concerned about those who have fallen asleep or who have died in Christ. In other words, the grieving that takes place is our grieving for a believer who has gone home to be with the Lord is not in the magnitude or along the same lines as the grieving that comes from a person who is not born again. Is there grieving? Sure there is. Do we miss them? Sure we do. But as a believer, we know where they are based upon their own testimony. And so Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed about what's going on here. Because now he's going to specify it in verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. In other words, you don't have to worry about it. When Jesus Christ returns for the church one day, guess what? All of those who are dead in Christ... He's not just going to leave them, okay? Don't have to be concerned. Verse 15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So I have to tell you this, you're not going to beat them there. We're all going together. So those that are dead in Christ, as well as those of us who are alive, verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Now look at verse 18, and notice what Paul says. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. You don't have to worry. You don't, you don't have to be concerned about where they are if they're a believer in Christ. And let me tell you something. When we have a dear saint of God that goes home to be with the Lord, let me tell you something. It ought to be a celebration service for the life of that individual. Matter of fact, are you ready for this? They have finally gone into the presence of God himself. Now, I don't know about you. I'm not looking to get on the bus today or tomorrow. But I will say this. I'm looking forward to that day. Looking forward to it. Why? Because my hope is in Christ. That's why. 
not in this world, not in the government, not in the parish, not in anything else, but in Jesus Christ alone. Matter of fact, one of the things that Paul does, he assures that those who died in Christ will rise together with the living at the return of Christ. He also reminded his readers of this, that those who know the Lord is coming must press forward in faithful, godly living. See, here's one of the other things that the church at Thessalonica was going through. You ready for this? They were going through significant persecution. So what kept them going? That blessed hope that is found only in Christ. What kept them going was the motivation of the gospel. What kept them going was their love for Christ. What kept them going was their love to see others come to know Christ. Let me ask you a question. What about us today? Some people say, well, that was the, that was the letter to the church at Thessalonica. So what difference does it make for us today? Let me tell you something. It ought to do the same thing for us. And I will say this to you today. The church in the West doesn't know anything about persecution. We've not experienced it. Huh? So what happens when it parks itself on our doorstep? You say, oh, we live in America. It'll never happen. So the persecution that the church in Thessalonica was experiencing called for the assurance that those responsible would also suffer a just judgment. So there are six things that I want to give you real quickly. All of that was introduction to these six things, okay? And let me give them to you just real quickly. You're not going to be able to write all of them down. If you want them, I'll be more than happy to share them with you afterwards. But we're going to go through them in detail as we make our journey through the, through the letter to the church at Thessalonica. Here's the first one. He reminds them, as you go through his letters, to look back to the beginning of their Christian experience and to remember that they suffered for the kingdom of God, to go back and, and look. Let me ask you a question. Any of y'all ever gone back to the day that you come to know Jesus Christ, your personal Savior? For me, it's easy. Because I know exactly when it was. I haven't always been a preacher. I haven't always been in the ministry. Matter of fact, I've shared this before. There was not a greater skeptic to the things of God than I was. But I will tell you what, not, not to piggyback on the, the back of, of Josh McDowell and all of the work that they have done, but he wrote a book entitled, The Evidence Demands a Verdict. And I will tell you today, when you examine the evidence, there's only one verdict that you can that you can arrive at. Are you ready for it? Jesus Christ is in fact who he said that he is. Number two. He reminds them that their suffering, he reminds them that their suffering was evidence of the genuineness of the faith that was inside of them. And it was a reflection of their true imitation of God in their life. Paul understood what it meant to be an ambassador of Christ. He wrote that in his letter to the church at Corinth. He said, now then we are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. We represent him everywhere we go. 
we represent Jesus Christ, whether it's good or whether it's bad. As a born-again believer, I think sometimes we lose sight of this. As a born-again believer, the Holy Spirit lives within sight of us. And so as the Holy Spirit lives within sight of us, are you ready for this? You take him with you everywhere you go. Every thought, every comment, every statement, everything you do, as a believer, the Holy Spirit is right there with you. So what kind of image do we portray of Jesus Christ? Number three, he reminds them to look past the moment that they were at in the persecution. And he reminds them to look where? And if I could encourage you with this this morning, get your eyes off of where things are right now and look forward to where it's going to be. Keep your eyes on the end goal. Keep your eyes on the end game. It's what Paul said. Keep your eyes at the end of the race. Keep your eyes at the finish line. If you keep your eyes at the finish line and you see things are getting difficult, that's when you press in much more in the effort. You don't quit. Matter of fact, here's what coaches tell their teams all the time. Yeah, we might be behind. Now's not the time to what? To quit. Matter of fact, what we need to do is go out there now and give it more than we've given so far. Let me ask you a question. That's exactly what Paul is encouraging the church at Thessalonica to do. Are you ready for this? Here's what Paul said. He said, the glory that awaits us is beyond anything we could ever, ever imagine in our lives. Number four. I like this one that he shares, okay? He reminds them, oh, by the way, okay, I just want you to understand something. Yeah, I'm the pastor of this church here, okay? I'm not any different than you are when it comes to dealing with things in the world. So guess what he does? He reminds the church at Thessalonica and the believers in Thessalonica that you're not alone in your suffering. You're not by yourself. How many of y'all remember good old Elijah the prophet and the prophets of Baal? when he assembled them all together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah had an altar there. He told the prophets of Baal, he said, go ahead, I'll let you go first. He said, do what you need to do. See if you can muster up these gods that you serve and let's see what they can do with this altar. Matter of fact, you go ahead and prepare it however you want to prepare it. So they cut it up, they cut the sacrifice up, they put it on the altar and we all know the rest of the story. They went through, and for hours, nothing happened. Elijah said, well, maybe he's sleeping, or maybe he's going on a journey somewhere. Maybe something else is going on, but something apparently is going awry here because nothing's happening. And finally, after a while, he said, enough's enough. So he takes and he prepares the altar correctly. And he puts the sacrifice on there and they dig a moat around it and they fill it with water and they coat the sacrifice down with water and they coat the altar down with water and it's got water running everywhere. You know, at the end of the day, here's what Elijah put before the people. If God is who he claims that he is, then you need to choose today who you're going to serve. Either the prophets or the gods of Baal or you're going to worship Baal or you're going to worship God. One of the two. 
you make your choice today. So Elijah gets on his knees. And he begins to pray and ask God's blessing on the altar. And when he did, as Elijah got up, all of a sudden God answered from heaven. And the power of God struck that altar. It consumed the sacrifice. It absolutely licked up every inch and ounce of water that was around that altar. It's a choice. The same choice I would put to you today. Who are you going to serve? Well, unfortunately, Elijah had a bounty over his head by Jezebel. Ahaz was the king. Jezebel was his wife. When she heard what had happened, she put a bounty on his head. They start chasing Elijah. Guess where he goes? Winds up out in the desert in a cave. And while he's there and him and God have a conversation between the two of them, let me tell you, from Elijah, it turned into a pity party. Let me, let me help you with something today. It's not time for a pity party. We're not the only ones here. There are ones all around the world today, and listen to me. There are ones today, while we're sitting in here, that are giving their life because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what does it do to motivate us? To the importance and to the magnitude of the task that we have been given. So what did Elijah do? He began to complain. And he complained to God, and here's what he said. I'm the only one that hasn't bowed his knee to Baal. Elijah said, son, it's time to get up. You're not the only one. Matter of fact, I have a greater task for you. Matter of fact, someone pointed it out to me this morning. I've done went and looked it up because I had to verify what I was told, okay? And they were absolutely correct. You know what the task was that God had for Elijah after that episode at Mount Carmel? And after that experience that he had with God in the cave? And when he was finally taken care of and he got up and he went on his way, when God finally told him there's 7,000, okay, that are not going to bow their knee to the image of Baal, guess what? Here's the task that God gave him to do. I want you to go anoint the king not only of Israel but also of Judah. And oh, by the way, I want you to go anoint the king of Syria. Huh? Of Syria? Sure, let me tell you the lesson that Elijah just learned. He learned about the sovereignty of God and God's control regardless of who it may be. My dear friend, listen to me. God's got this thing. God's in charge of it. God's in control of it. Why don't we move forward today like he is? five neither did they preserve or persevere in their own strength alone but were constantly supported by the apostles and indeed by the power of God himself folks listen to me where do we draw our power from I hate to tell you this I hope you ain't, draw, I hope you ain't relying on my power I don't have any where's our power come from it's through the power of the Holy Spirit of God. That's where it comes from. Are you ready for this? God hadn't pulled it back. If you're a born-again believer, listen to me. You've got all the Holy Spirit you're going to get. Here comes the other side of that coin. 
you will only see the working of the Holy Spirit in your life as much as you allow him to do so. Number six. Whew, I got to quit. <clears throat> Number six. Finally, he assured them that the evil ones will have their day. Mighty friend, listen to me. There's a day coming when the wicked will get their just judgment. But you want to know something? My concern is that some of the worst things we can do is fall into the hands of the wrath of God himself. I could never imagine being told after all of the books were opened and the book of life and it's just not there. And it's not for God to determine whether or not your name's written in the book of life. It's for you to see that it's not there. And to hear him say, depart from me, you cursed, because I never knew you. Could you imagine hearing those words coming from this life that we live today into that life, knowing that from then on, for all of eternity, you're going to live in total separation from God himself? I don't know about you, but it ought to be sobering to us as a church today. Is it? Is it to you? Or has it just become a hat? It's just what we hear every Sunday really doesn't matter really doesn't make any difference let me say something to you this morning every soul that comes to know Jesus Christ as their personal savior is a big deal with God is it a big deal with us it ought to be